Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 269, The Ghosts of Cielo Drive. We're here with David Omen, the owner of the Omen House, which is uh, like a stone's throw away from the house on Cielo Drive where the infamous Manson family Sharon Tate murders happened 50 years ago in 1969. And since David has built and moved into the house, he's experienced a cornucopia of supernatural activity and have been investigated by everybody from ghost hunters to ghost adventures to, uh, you know, Barry Taff from the Entity case. And we want to welcome David to the show and talk about the book he just released about that supernatural activity that's happening at his place, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, The Afterlife of Sharon Tate and the Spirits of the Omen House. Welcome, Dave. Well, thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate that. And so let's get a little background uh, from you real quick for people who are interested, kind of, um, you're a Los Angeles native. Did you see ghosts as a kid or how did you stumble into the supernatural? I honestly, I always wanted to see a ghost as a kid. I'm one of the few people in the world that was uh, adamant about it. It's like, I want to see a ghost. Yeah, come on, let's find him. And that's pretty much how it started. I um, was always intrigued in my childhood uh, about paranormal, about ghosts, about hauntings. Um, I just had always had a curiosity and a fascination with them. Um and to be honest with you, as a kid, we used to literally go look around at old, abandoned, and burnt-down homes that were remnants of the Bel Air fire. And, you know, we used to scour the neighborhood and the hills there for stuff like that. Um, but to lead you to where I am right now, about 21 years ago in November of 1998, on a Sunday morning, my dad calls me up at 8 in the morning, woke my ass up, and... Um, started you know telling me in an excited fashion saying David get up come on I found a lot it's forty thousand dollars in Beverly Hills and I'm half asleep and I'm like one oh, uh dad what what dad it's eight in the morning on Sunday morning what what because I found a classified ad in the LA Times there's a lot it's a foreclosure it's forty thousand dollars and I'm like oh Jesus dad I'm thinking you're you're off your rocker you misread it it's not for Either you misread it or it's a misprint. It's probably four zero zero K and they forgot a zero. Right. And, he, and he's like, no, no, that's not it. And my dad, here's the setup of my dad. He's 82 years old. Now, you mostly think of an 82-year-old man as being in a wheelchair or with a walker. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, not Paul Pissin Vinegar Omen. My father was driving a 19, it was a 1997 it was it a Z28 Camaro? Okay. And no, he wasn't like the old man. I was like, hey, what are you doing, kid? Yeah. He was spry, lively, and full of, full of, uh, you know, P and V, as I used to say. He was, he was, a, he was a hell of a character, but he was like active and looked like he was like in his 60s, not even like late, like his 50s. And, he was like, come on, go, go on, get up out of the house. Come on, go go meet me up. says, all right, fine, fine. He says, it's up Benedict Canyon on a street called Cielo Drive. And again, I'm half awake, half asleep. And I'm like, it's all right, yeah. So I get my Thomas guide, the map, the roadmap guide to find out where the street is. And I drive up there 20 minutes later with my dogs. And I get up there 10 minutes before he gets up there. And I'm looking down the street from where this lot is. And I'm like shocked. And I'm like, going, oh my God, I don't, I don't, I don't believe this. That's, that's where the Sharon Tate house stood. But I start to immediately realize that whatever it was that I had seen when I was in high school back in 1978 and 79, that that was all gone. And I could see immediately there was this huge mass of wrought iron double gate that was there in front of the property. And as I recall it, there was a um, 
it had this old paved road that went down there and there was a chain link fence and you could see, you know, you couldn't see the house, but you could see into the driveway. And I looked down and I said, it's all dirt now. It's like, oh, wow, it's all gone. And uh, my dad drives up and I'm shaking my head going, I can't believe I'm up here again. And he, I, I said, dad, I said, that's where the Sharon Tate murders took place 30 years ago. I'm pointing down the street and he looks at me and he gives me this look like I don't give a good God. You know, right. <laughs> we're here to look at this freaking piece of real estate. What do I give a rat's ass about what once was, where it was, etc.? He goes, focus, kid, focus. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. He goes, so this is a lot. And I'm looking in a, and it's a pretty steep slope. It's not vertical, but it's about a 40 degree slope. It's pretty steep. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, I see there are weeds all over the thing. And then I started to notice there was rebar which is basically steel rods that are on top of the uh, the earth that they would then pour concrete around to fill in for the reinforced, what is it, the um, foundation. Right. And I'm like, Dad, am I crazy or do I see rebar on top of the earth? He goes, he goes oh, crap. He goes, you do. He says, I think that if there's rebar on top of the earth that they would have put in the caissons first because the only reason why you put the rebar on is because you've already done the preliminary which work, which is to dig holes deep into the earth, into the bedrock, then three foot diameter holes, then to pour concrete reinforced with steel rebar. And you would then put the rebar on top to, to connect to that, to build the foundation. I'm like, Oh my God. He goes, that is what he goes. That's what that is. He goes, they apparently were in the middle of construction and got stopped by the city for some reason. And the property has been sitting in limbo in this state for about 20 some odd years. So they'd already done the kind of the groundwork into creating a house because this is, I mean, you're putting a, a house into the side of a steep hill. I mean, you're, right. pic- you're picturing the, you know, there's going to be pictures of the house that you can see at othersidepodcast.com slash yeah. 269. We'll have some pictures of it. But I mean, it is classic when you think of a house in the Hollywood Hills kind of thing. Um, it's that classic, like the looks like it's a house built into the side of a mountain yep that's what it is three stories tall and um he decided that he says if we can get this he says we can buy this we can build this ourselves because my dad was a builder designer and an architect and um he always liked houses that as he called them difficult homes difficult lots he goes distressed properties i said what is that he goes you can get distressed properties for less money because most people that are builders just are dissuaded from building on a slope. I said, yeah, he goes, most people like to build on flat pads. He goes, I like to build and get creative with the piece of property to build the houses that I build because it's less expensive in some regards and it gives me more flexibility and creativity to design something around that property. And I said, well, I've no, God, Dad, I said, I've been around with you since you've been building houses since I was a kid. You built my sister's house that she lives in to this day. I said, it was always my dream to build a house with you. And it was just a matter of fact. I look forward to it. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is this is actually going to happen. We're going to get a lot and I'm going to get to move out of my apartment that I've lived in for 20 years. So you find that the $40,000 is not a typo. It's not a mistake that your dad made. The lot really was, I mean, $40,000. Yeah, it was $40,000 because you could not build on the property according to the city. It had started to be built on and they stopped it. And because they stopped it, they it went to foreclosure. So we bought the lot in January of 1999. And um, it turns out that there was a... On the maps, they, the, the city maps, the planning commission maps, there was a transfer. And from one year to another, in like 30 years ago or 20 years ago, they switched. Somebody took the name Private Drive and put Private Street. Now, between you and me, it's semantics. But what it turned out to be was in the city, street is maintained by the city. Private Drive is maintained by the property owners. So somewhere in the trans in the in the updating of the, the city maps, somebody changed the name by accident, and that caused a kerfuffle with the construction twenty years earlier. And that we straightened out. We bought the lot. We built the house here. And during construction, strange things were happening. But so the thing is that this this is also amazes me too. So yeah. it really was a clerical error 
makes yeah. it so these people have to give up on their construction where they're probably building an extraordinarily expensive house the side of a mountain. And they're like, okay, well, we can't do it anymore because of a clerical error. Then they sell a place. You get it. You get the clerical error changed over so you can build again. Yeah. I mean, that almost seems... Surreal. You know, that's one of those stories that you only see in a movie or whatever because it's like yeah. you can't fight City Hall. Well, you, you fought City Hall and you won. Well, we didn't even fight. We just got the clarification figured out because I said to him, I said, how is it that other houses are on the street yet the street's non-buildable? I said, that doesn't make any sense. And he goes, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't be. I said, exactly, Pops. It shouldn't be like that. So that's the whole scoop in the story behind that. When you think about it, it was all... Yeah, you want to say it was meant to be. If it was meant to be, it was meant to be, but it had to be. And that's what ended up happening, you see. Well, you needed a couple of guys who were smart enough to figure out that, well, here's how we actually can build on the property, get it for a steal, come in there and be able to, you know, be able to make the house. Now, so you're setting up this a three-story house into the side of the hill. And, you know, what kind of stuff was happening while people were building it? Well, during construction, we had the laborers that were having strange things. They were saying to me, David, were you here last night? Did you move this and that? It's like, what? Did I move this? I said, why would I move the tools from Wex? And it's like, no, we, we, you know, tools were missing from one room to another. It's like, no. I go, yeah. And just strange things. And my personal experiences when I was here were that I was feeling like walking around the house, you feel like somebody's walking up behind you and they're going to talk to you and you go, yeah, what? And there's no one there behind you. That kind of stuff kind of got kind of unnerved me to say the least. I couldn't explain it, but I couldn't, you know, dissuade it. It was like, all right, that's, that's strange as all hell. And I felt it more than once. So it was like, okay, this is too crazy and creepy. Now, you also have that movie, um, The yeah. House at the End of the Drive. And in the film, doesn't the Lance Henriksen character like detail something that happened to one of the workers? I mean, how much is that is that fictionalized and how much are you like, well, this is what happened? Well, actually, the movie is half fantasy and half fiction. I mean, half fantasy. <laughs> Sorry, that means 100% bullshit, doesn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. No, it was half fantasy and half factual. And what I, by that, I mean that we had stuff that was going on here in the house that I decided to put into the movie. And it was stuff that was like, no, that didn't happen. So, oh, yes, it did. For instance, Lance Hendrickson re re replays um, the story, relates the story of one of my contract laborers who was here. And six months before the construction was finished, I assembled the laborers. I said, have you guys had any strange things happen during construction? And one guy goes, oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, I had something strange as all hell happen here. And he goes on to tell me the story. And I'm like, go away. Right. He basically, the story was, is that he was here by himself in the middle of the summer, July. And he was down on the third level working. And as he tells the story, he was down there doing some work. He heard voices and footsteps coming from the top floor. So he came running upstairs to see what was going on. He goes, there's no one there. He goes outside, he starts looking around, and he goes, there's no, uh, no one on the street. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, there's no one on the street. It's empty. I said, okay. And he goes, yeah. And what's stranger is, is that I keep on, you know, walking around the, the neighborhood, and I guess there's not a car out there. I said, well, I've been here before, and you know, I've never seen anybody out here past you know, before seven o'clock. And he goes, exactly. And I'm like, on exactly what? And he goes, exactly my point. And I'm like, yeah, that is strange. So he then tells me that he goes back downstairs and he starts working. And he hears the voices and footsteps coming from the top floor. Mm. So he goes running upstairs again. No one there. He says, uh, it's not possible. I said, that sounds pretty hairy. He goes, yeah, I don't understand it, but I'm tired and I'm getting the hell out of there. So I said, okay, so what happened? He goes, I go downstairs, I start packing my bags. And it's 90 degrees out this 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 wonderful summer day at six o'clock. Sure. And he starts going to get his bags packed. And all of a sudden he says, he hears the footsteps coming down the staircase. And he says, they're getting louder and louder. 
And he says he gets himself into the other room and he's sitting there waiting. And he says they got so loud. He says they got to the landing and stopped. And he says it was strange because it wasn't like tennis shoes. He goes, it was like leather soled shoes hitting the wooden planks as they were trailing, going down the staircase. He says, I come out of the room and the and to, to, to 10 feet out and I go to the bottom of the, the landing and I don't see anything there. And it's impossible. He says, there's no possible way that it could have been there and then disappeared there in that amount of time. He goes, and then all of a sudden this ice cold breeze comes whizzing across the back of his neck. And he goes, it's not like it's a wind blowing. He says, it's like an isolated two inch band of ice that's being dragged across the back of his neck, below his hairline and above his shoulder blades. And he goes, the hairs in his whole entire body stood straight up. And he screams, dos mios, dos mios, yame boy, yame boy. And took off and didn't come back for six weeks. Oh, man. And I said to him when he finally did come back, I said, wait a second. And I said to him, is that when you told the guys who were in El Salvador taking care of your mother who was sick in San Salvador? And he goes, uh-huh. I said, I remember that because you were the one that was putting in or supposed to put in the tiles in, in the master bathroom, which you had done in the kitchen and all the other bathrooms, but you didn't get to the master bath. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I got so tired of waiting for you for the past, for the last First two weeks, I said, fine. But after that, come the third week, I said, damn it, I'll do it myself. And I did. I put the tiles in myself. And to this day, you can see how poorly a job I did because it's impossible to get away with saying, yeah, the rest of the house looks great. But God, what happened to the master bathroom? It's like, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. What happened to the master bathroom? So right from when the place was being built, I mean, strange things were happening. Enough that a worker walked off. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and didn't come back. About when did you move into it? What year did you actually get to move in uh, to your home? I moved in in, uh, what was it, uh, 2002 is when I moved in. And so you move in, and about how long after you move in do weird things start happening? Immediately. I mean, I knew immediately stuff was going kooky here because you could feel stuff going on in the house. And it's like, going, that's strange. I said, I got stuff going on here that just doesn't add up. And it's like, okay, <laughs> And it was just strange incidents of things happening, of, of you, you seeing things out of the corner of your eye, of dealing with the, um, the, the spirit, so to speak, visiting. It was just like, okay, there's stuff going on here I can't explain. And it didn't bother me. It was just kind of curious, to say the least. Um, I found it, I was rather amused by it. I wasn't ever threatened or felt any kind of disconcerted behaviors. Like, oh, this is a threat to my to my being. It's like, no, never before, not at all. It was, it was pleasant. It was never, I hate to say it was never an issue, but it was never an issue. Sure. Well, there's never anything that, you know, it was just little weird stuff would happen, but yeah, nothing that like scared happened. the crap out of you. No, not, nothing that would scare the crap out of anybody, to be honest with you. It was all good. It was all fine. It was all, oh, for lack of better words, it was all, it was okay. It wasn't anything to be feeling threatened by or fearful of. It was just there. And so when you had your first experience of seeing a full body apparition, yeah, um, is that moment that you were like, okay, now there's something... I can't ignore here? Well, again, I didn't ignore it. Never did I ever, ever, ever do that. Because as I found, if you ignore something and put it under the the rug, so to speak, it's going to come back. And it's going to come back 10 times more powerful than the first time. Because it's like the pee at the bottom of 100 mattresses. You'll feel it no matter how many mattresses are there. And eventually it'll take over and consume your mind because you're not dealing with it. So I would always acknowledge it when I saw an apparition. I was not an apparition. When I would see a shadow figure or somebody or I heard something, I would acknowledge it and say, all right, I said I saw that. I said, that's cool. I never allowed it to, to, to I never put it under the, 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 the tufts of my skin to be like ignored. Because like I said, it just, you're, you're just, you're going to have to deal with it somewhere down the road. So what was it like to have that, I mean, the first time you saw an apparition? So you, you paid attention to what was happening in the house and right. uh, you respected it and you said, okay, well, there's some weird stuff going on here, but it's not bothering me. I'm living in my dream home, um, so I'm going <laughs> to just enjoy it. But then 
when you could no longer, when you had to like maybe do something about it? Was it, I mean, it was after you had that experience? Can you describe that waking up in the middle of the night experience that happened to you? Yeah, well, it was 2004, um, mid-July. Uh, My girlfriend at the time was flying, was a flight attendant flying American Airlines through Europe, um, doing the European route. Uh, my mom was dying of cancer, of pancreatic cancer. And um, basically, it was, um, I woke up, I went to put my head on the pillow. It was 1.36. I then fell asleep. I then my eyes popped open. I didn't know why. I felt I had been out, out for like hours. And the next thing I noticed is I'm, my eyes are drifting towards the front of the bed. And there I see this gentleman standing there, a full body apparition. And I don't recognize him. He's in a suit. It's in a he's in a short lapeled suit. His left fin index, his left arm is extended out, and his fin index finger is pointing. And he's making a quarter turn towards what I at the time believed was the driveway. As it turns out, he was not pointing towards the driveway. It took eight years for that apparition's what he was saying or what he was his motion and his movements to be unraveled and, and, and unfurled for me to figure out. Um, because at the time, I thought he was pointing towards going down the driveway. He was pointing towards the property next door to me, which was a vacant double lot that had been sitting there long before we had bought our lot. And um, eight years after his apparition manifested and was pointing at the lot, somebody bought the lot and decided to build their dream, to build a spec house there. But unlike most constructions where you put caissons on the side of the hill and you basically build step footings, which is just what it is, it's concrete steps that are about four feet, depends upon how you design it, but in my case, they're four feet tall by four feet long, going down like a staircase going down the hillside, which the framing and the house sits. No, 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 no. They decided to take the liberty of, of drilling and putting 30 some odd caissons, which were three foot diameter piles going down right next to the street and then removing the entire mountain. Like if you can imagine taking a slice of cake and slicing straight down and then taking out a section like a like a cornering section or like a triangular section of cake. But they did it with the mountain, went 60 feet down, then went 40 feet from the bottom of the of the of the pad of the hillside and then removed the entire mountain. And it was traumatic for the house because my house was shaking like a leaf on a tree while they were doing this crap. And um, it was not good for the for the house. Let's put it that way. Um, during the to this construction that was going on. Well, when you saw the character, though, when, I mean, when you saw the apparition, did it look like you could? Did it look like he was standing there, like he was solid, real, or was it like see through him? He looked like he was solid, but not um, everything about him was unique. Meaning the coloring of him was all in in black and white tones. His body, his his the suit he was wearing was like a grayish, was a gray tone. Um, a light gray. His shirt was a powder blue gray. His tie was a dark blue gray. His hair was like charcoal black gray. It was kinked and parted to the side. Um, it, again, I didn't recognize him because he wasn't, you know, we all believe that ghosts manifest as they do when they're alive. Right. Not exactly true. I mean, when they died, he wasn't wearing the outfit he was wearing when he was killed. Because later on, and I'd seen pictures of Sebring, and he was in this, these horrible striped jeans, he was in a suit. Now, the thing is, you believe, or it, you know, you discovered later on that the person that you saw or the apparition that you saw um, yeah. was, you know, it looked like Jay Sebring. Like you said, you yeah. didn't recognize him at the time. Um, right. How eventually did you find out that the, uh, that, that the vision that you saw in your bedroom that night ended up being him? Um, a few months later, I went to the LAPD to do research to see if they would allow me access to the, the sealed vault files and the photographs of the Sharon Tate murders to see if by any chance somebody, one of the perpetrators, had left a anything on the side of the hill where this house now stands. So I was thinking, all right, maybe there's a bloody glove, you know, maybe some bloody rags that were left on the side of the hill. So, anything, something, whatever, right? Uh-uh. And uh, when I was going through the photographs, I went through first the LaBianca photographs, which were horrendous. 
then I had to come back a couple of weeks later and, and, and get access to seeing the tape files. And going through the files, I found a photograph, and it was an 8x10 photo of Jay Sebring, and it said Jay Sebring. On the reverse, it said Jay Sebring with his natural hairstyle. When I saw the photograph, I immediately, immediately knew it was Jay. And I was like, oh, my God, I, that's, that's, that's the guy I saw in my bedroom. I mean, I was literally like verklempt. I couldn't freaking believe that the guy who I'm looking at in this picture was the guy, in fact, who was in my room. And, and so you, you saw that. And so if you guys um, need a little background on Jay Sebring, he was He friend. was the hairstylist to the stars, Sharon Tate's ex-fiance. He was also one of the murder victims at the end of the street. And so you see him, um, yeah. you know, in your room. He seems to be warning you about something that later on you, you know, you you find out what it's about. And so then was that, you know, you decide, okay, um, we might have to call in some Ghostbusters or some kind of investigators or something to try and make sense of what's happening in the house. Well, I invited Rob Ladowski. It was the going on to the 35th anniversary of the murders, and it's about a month after that I saw Jay, and it was most, less than a month after when I saw Jay that I decided to call and find somebody to come here and to do an investigation here. And I called up Rob because he had written a few books. He was local. Um, and we talked, and he brought over um, his team. Uh, which included Al McCary, who I later on became friends with, Diane Melvin, um, his wife, Anne, and a few other people that came with him. And I invited my screenwriting friend, Jim Vines, to be a part of this evening. Um, and it was amazing, like I said, because we did this two months before the, uh, the show Ghost Hunters aired which was the first paranormal reality show. Right. That tells you a little bit about how advanced ahead of the curve we were here. Um, and we had, I went out and bought myself a cheap piece of crap camera that I could take pictures with that wouldn't be, um, would be 35 millimeter film. And I couldn't be called out as being fraudulent because the camera was so rudimentary that you could take a picture and then you forward advanced it to make the pictures go. And it's like, okay, fine. You know, I've got 800 speed film. I must've taken 200 and some odd photographs, random photographs around the house. And out of those 200 photographs, I think four or five of them had things that were anomalies that I could not explain. And so were you doing particular things to not necessarily provoke, but um, try to talk to the spirits at the time, like you know, like we think about ghost hunters now, or ghost adventures, or any show like that. You know, ghost adventures are walking around, come at me, ghost, you know, kind of thing. But when you were walking around, uh, you know, were you trying to communicate with the spirits? Were you saying anything at the time that maybe then they manifested in the photos? Um, no, I was just—it was just a matter of just walking around the house, taking pictures, and doing. All right, fine, you know, if you're here, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it was—you got to remember—I was very new to the whole idea of what we're talking about. Sure. Um, and I wasn't—I'm not—I'm I'm very respectful of those that have passed away, so I'm not pushing that agenda of da 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 da, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not—is provoking them, I guess, is the best way to say it. I'm not a person that would do that. I think that's harsh, disrespectful, and quite honestly, it doesn't do anything for anybody. It makes you look like an ass. It's what it makes you look like. And if anything, it'll piss a spirit off, I personally believe. I think that that's just, you know, asking for trouble. And as a result, I wouldn't engage in that. And it was just my way of being. I just don't do that. I think it's harsh, you know, to do that to something. I think... You know, if you know that something's there and you want to get its attention, respectfully get its attention. Don't harass it. And so when you guys were doing that initial investigation, you bring people over, you know, you're getting some stuff from the pictures and maybe a little bit from the film you took. Was anyone else getting there? Was they um, either yes. things moving around or felt touched or anything like that? Oh, yeah. The, the first time... The, the, <laughs> Uh, that was the first time I met Al McCarian when she was here. She heard or she saw the apparition of one of uh, of Sharon Tate. And she replied to me, she goes, I just saw your girlfriend. It's like, what? I said, my girlfriend, she's she's not even here. What are you talking? And she described this woman walking around the house. And I'm like, huh, huh. 
And I'm like, well, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, that's not my girlfriend. And she describes Sharon to a T. Oh, that's pretty cool. And so she's getting that sense uh, that, you know, some of the people who were murdered nearby are manifesting themselves in the house. Yep. And so as that happens, um, you know, when did you start maybe inviting more investigators in? And when did this go from, you know, you're thinking, well, okay, uh, if there's going to be, if there's going to be a paranormal hotspot, or as, you know, somebody called it the Disneyland of the dead. Yeah, Disneyland for the dead and the Mount Everest of haunted houses. <laughs> that was Barry Taff. Right. Uh, you know, Barry Taff, we talked to Ben before. He's in the Demon House movie and, and he's, in a, he's in a lot of different uh, paranormal investigations. But when did you decide, okay, we're going to get more ghost hunters here? When did you decide to publicize it and maybe um, try to get more opinions on the uh, activity that might be happening? Well, after Barry, I think it was Ghost Hunters uh, had approached me to be on their show, the second season or the third season, and Barry said, I don't want you to be on that. I said, why not? He goes, because it'll, it'll destroy my credibility. And I was like, the Barry, what, what do you want to do? I want to use the house for, for as, as a paranormal investigation place for others to come and investigate around the world. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. I said, we're not going to take that tact and do that here in my house. When I live here, no, we're not going to do that. I can't do that, Barry. And basically, Barry and I had a falling out. And he said, well, I can't be involved with something that I don't believe in. And I think it's disrespectful to my integrity, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, Barry, if that's the case, then you just have to go. Because I, I didn't want to turn my house into, quote unquote, a paranormal um, investigator's hotbed for the world to come to. I just didn't find that to be as something that was going to happen. And I said, look, Barry, I live here. I'm not going to just turn my house into a, uh, for lack of better words, a guinea pig. Sure. And that's basically what happened. I just, you know, we parted ways and there was never any hard feelings about it. It later on became a play, a play of Zach Baggins that he's bringing, you know, Barry and I together. And it's like, you're not doing anything of the sort. And that's basically what it was, was Barry and I had a falling out. And it was more to do with the fact that Barry wanted to do something with the house that I was not interested in doing, which was make it a, a lab rat, for lack of better words. But you were OK with people coming in to investigate it every once in a while. Well, what it was is I had the ghost hunters come by. Um, and then after that, Lisa Williams called me up and said, I saw your house on ghost hunters. I want to see it. And I'm like, who the hell is this? And oh, I said, oh, you. So I know who you are. I said, oh, yeah, I'd be happy to have you. And she decided to come in the house and do an investigation. And she had some strange stuff happen to her here. She had some really strange things happen to her where she was the first psychic from television that had come in the house that wanted to see it that I said, you know, you can't bring your cameras in because I'm not going to do it. She goes, no, I'm coming by myself with my my manager and we want to go through the house, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, come on in. So when she went through, it was like, I don't want to say exhilarating, but it was fascinating because I hadn't had really any psychics here. And when she went through the house, she picked up stuff that was pretty gosh darn substantial. And I was like, the what? She goes, oh, you've got this going on, that going on, and there's a big party in your bar, and I'm looking at the bar going, I don't see a goddamn thing. What are you What are you talking about? There's a party. And she goes, oh, well, Sharon's there, and Jay's there, and there's some Native Americans there, and they all want me to tell you they really appreciate you letting them stay here and hang here. And I'm like going, oh, what? Oh, what? And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. So she then take I take her downstairs to the third level, and she goes through, and she says to me, oh, we go into the earthen realm. She goes, do you know there's a Native American on horseback here? And I'm like, what? And she goes, oh, yeah, he's there in the corner of the earthen wall room, and he wants me to talk to you and tell you that, you know, his story. I'm like, what the f***? And she's just going on and on. And I'm like going, scratching my head going, Beverly Hills, Native, what, what kind of horse donkey story is this? That type of thing. And about a year or two years later, I got one of the Benedict Canyon um, Association newsletters. 
And there's an article about this Native American incident that took place 150 some odd years earlier, a mile from my house. And on this on the Beverly on the corner of Chevy Chase and Beverly on Benedict Canyon is a boulder. And on this boulder is a bronze placard. And on the bronze placard it reads this is to commemorate the early battle between the early a battle between the early Californians and the Native Americans, where the remains of three Native Americans were were buried or in, and were, were uncovered on this spot when the ground was first broken in 1925. And I'm like, oh my God. So I did the research and found out that in 1842, when this was still all part of Mexico, that the Native Americans that lived here basically raided upon this um, ranchero down there on Alpine and Beverly Drive, I mean, Sunset Boulevard. And um, they basically had a running battle all the way that ended a mile away from there and a mile away from here in between the two properties and in the middle of the Walnut Grove. And three Native Americans were killed and were buried right on the spot. And I'm like, holy wow. That's unheard of. I don't believe it. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that's what the hell we came up with when I found that. And I, I basically lost my marbles. So then, you, then what it turns into is, okay, that um, this might be a hot pet of activity because it had such a, like a, such a horrible event happen in 1969 that kind of that focused – you know, such mental energy from across the world and everything. It became a spotlight uh, on that particular place and like a horrific event. But then you find out that there's been more events that happened near there um, throughout history that make it seem like, well, maybe it's not uh, just one event that happened here that kind of caused things. Maybe this is the kind of place that attracts very powerful events to happen there. And what I thought was, reading your book, what I thought was interesting was you talk about some of um, the electromagnetic anomalies that are in the house and in the area. And I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit because this idea is like, okay, we've had these horrible murders happen here. We've had these kind of you know Native American settler battles uh, that happened here. And now we're seeing that maybe there is something to not just events that happen in those location, but it's the location itself. Right. And as, as well as had the murders not taken place at the end of the street, this place would still be a hotbed for activity. Well, even Barry Taft says that, I think he says that he had heard that specifically, you know, Benedict Canyon was a place that had a lot of hauntings even before uh, the Sharon Tate stuff happened. Yeah, there were a lot of things that were going on here in the area with the paranormal activity. Other people had experienced stuff before. So it's not like we were the only isolated um, incident of that. But the fact is, is the way the house is and what goes on here, that's what's different. We have a lot of stuff that goes on here that doesn't um, make a lot of sense. And even there's there's a problem with compasses, right? Like the compasses, yeah. do that point to true north in the house? In certain parts of the house, a compass will deflect and cannot find true north, yes. Strange, strange electric. Plus we have things like cold spots and um, energy that just you can feel in certain parts of the house to go into and you'll feel this energy just envelop you and you go, oh my God, I, I, I'm finding it hard to breathe. I'm feeling I'm going up several altitudes in a plane, but I'm not in a plane, but I feel like I'm in a plane and I feel, you know, uneasy, queasiness, that kind of stuff happens here all the time. And I think that's interesting too, because isn't it also near a earthquake fault? We do have an earthquake fault line going up Benedict Canyon, but what Barry Taffet said was that he thought it was pre-seismic. I mean, pre-volcanic, not pre-seismic, meaning that there's a large lava tube in the earth below us and the way that the house is designed with a lot of steel in it, it's uh, magnifying and amplifying the naturally occurring EMF levels in the earth and causing this kind of a wild, as you say, setup of activity that's going on here. So when you talk about uh, places with interesting history, you know, we think of often as paranormal activity will happen in a place that has had a lot of historical events or things that are maybe leaving residual energy from very emotional and powerful events like murders, like battles, things like that. But right. now we're adding on it that uh, the planet itself, 
is unique. You know, so the house is built on a unique part of the planet where you have a fault line. Um, you know, it's into the side of a mountain. And specifically, like, you guys had to do the steel for a certain reason, right? Like, it was the steel part of the rebar or what, what got you in there? Well, the, the, the fact, like I said, the fact that we got lucky on the property and, you know, the price and stuff, it was just... It was one of those things I couldn't turn away. My dad wanted to sell the house. And it's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. So um, as far as the you're talking about the movie now, the movie was inspired by the incidents that were taking place in the house. And I wanted to write my story and do that. And it still to this day has not been released. Um, that's another reason why I wrote the book was for people to get the story about the house and the hauntings and hope that somehow that would drive a little more interest in possibly getting the movie out to theatrical release. Sure. A couple more questions about the, uh, about the book though, and the stories that came from it. First of all, you have stories from the people that like in their own words, like obviously you quote Barry on a couple of things and then some of your friends and it's their own writing. So it's, it's people who actually put their name to weird stuff that they saw in the house. Yeah. Um, I always like that because um, then you you can't just say like, well, he misquoted me because you yeah. actually have their quotes. So those are fun. Those are really fun stories that, that a lot of different people have had extraordinary experiences in the house. But then you have a couple stories yourself. And, and one of them that I think is really interesting on two levels. Number one, uh, when Lindsay Lohan came to visit... <laughs> Yeah, and I, a little bit about that story I'm interested in, and also during the Lindsay Lohan visit, you mentioned that you seem to hear Sharon Tate's voice. Oh and, yeah, um, I'm interested in hearing about those. So can you? You don't have to go into the entire story, but just a little bit of the Lindsay Lohan story and how you hear that voice. Sure. Um, it was uh, Wednesday. It was the infamous day seven years ago that she was popped. On, and it was all over the news about her stealing the uh, the necklace from yes. that jewelry store. Well, a friend of mine who's a producer called me up, and I'm watching television. It's all over the news, so how can I not see that? And he goes, "Oh, David, how are you?" He goes, "I'm fine. What's going on?" He goes, "I had I was out at a party last night, and I ended up meeting and talking to for the longest time Lindsay." He goes, "Lilo," and I'm going, <laughs> "Who? What's a Lilo?" I mean, I. And he goes, don't you know? I said, what are you talking about? A cartoon character from Disney? What? Right. And he goes, no. He goes, Lilo. Don't you know Lilo? I'm going, no, I don't know Lilo. I'm not lying. What the f- is Lilo? Lindsay Lohan. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. She says, funny you should mention her. She's all over the news. And he goes, what about it? He goes, oh, well, you know, we were talking. She was up for a role doing a biopic about Sharon Tate, yada, yada, yada. We talked about you and I mentioned your house and she's fascinated by it. She saw you on Ghost Hunters. She wants to come to see the house. I said, oh, great. When? Uh, Tonight in about three hours. And I was like, what? Three what? I'm like, no, 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 no. I said, I got to clean the house up. So he goes, we'll see you at eight. And I'm like, okay, goodbye. Right. So I run around the house. I get the place straightened up and all, you know. And um, he shows up, and I go to the front door, and I open the door, and there she is. And I'm like, wow. Wow, 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 wow. And I'm like, and all of a sudden, she starts talking, and I just lost all, all the air and just left the room. In just a good like, way in a good way or a bad way? Bad way. Like, there was no, there was just like, every, like just, just like escaping gas, and what the hell is this about? I couldn't understand it to save my soul. So I was like, I can't believe this. What the flying, you know, it's like how just, 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 just distasteful is the word. It was just so like, uh. But she was interested in taking a role as Sharon Tate though, right? So that's one of the reasons she wanted to go. And if she hears that the place is haunted, maybe she can be connected to it. Kind of, sort of. So I'm like, okay. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be painful. I can feel it now. This is painful. So... She comes in the house. She goes, I want to see a ghost. The first words I'm asked, I want to see a ghost. And I'm like, oh, crap. It's going to be one of these nights. Right. And I'm like, I don't believe it. This can't be. I said, I couldn't have painted a more disparaging you know, image for a scene. And I'm like, oh, God. I said, look. 
And I don't get Star Trek because there's no point. They're actors. That's what they do for a living. Fine. I don't put anybody on a pedestal, least of all an actor and an actress. I don't care who the hell they are. And I said, look, I said, we're not on set, Lindsay. I don't have a walkie-talkie connected, hooked up to the, to the you know, the ghost language. I said, what do you expect me to do? I started pantom, not pantom, I started acting like, I said, okay, I got the walkie-talkie man. I go, ghost language one to ghost language two. This is ghost language one. I said, we need you to send up two, three uh, apparitions. Ms. Lohan would like to see two adults and a young child apparition. Can you send them up pronto, quicko, right now? Switch, 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 over. And she gives me this dirty look like, oh, you think you're so smart and smack. You don't know who I am. And I'm thinking to myself, I not only know who you are, I can feel your disgusting vibe here in my house. God, I'm really not pleased with you being here. And as far as I'm concerned or the ghosts are concerned, they all walked the hell out when you walked in. And that's what it felt like. It felt like like all the energy in the house just went kaput. Just ran away, like, oh, my God, it's her. Get out. So later on in the evening, we're downstairs watching some video clips of the shows I've been on. And Lindsay makes the comment saying, oh, well, somebody likes to see themselves on television. And I'm thinking to myself, you didn't just say that, did you? You don't really mean that because I spent the past three hours cleaning the house and hearing your name bandied around television and not in exactly the most positive light. And I said to myself, I'm not going to say that. I don't want to be an asshole and be, lower myself to her level. So I start passing around the room this book that I have that I've gotten. Somebody had sent to me. It's a, an old like first graders reader for kids. And inside of it on the first page, it's signed and inscribed from Sharon Tate to her sister, Patty. And um, inside this book was a note that I found that was from Sharon to her mother. And basically, I put the note into a plastic sleeve to protect it so when people would see it, they wouldn't get it all gummied up. It's inside the book. I passed the book around to a bunch of people, including Lindsay's sister, brother, brother who was there. And then it got to Lindsay, the last person to have the book and note. I get them the, the book back and I open the book and I hear a voice and it's Sharon. She goes, that little is taking the note. And I'm like, where's the note? Where's the note? And the last person who had the book and note intact was Lindsay. So I look at Lindsay and I give her this look and say, Lindsay, give me the note back. And she goes into um, Oscar Academy Award winning acting 101 and says, what note? I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding. I'm like thinking that like, no, you don't do that in my house and think you're getting away with that little. But when you heard the voice, though, so it was, it was like it was almost like Sharon telling you that. Oh, yeah. No, she said she goes, she's got it. And I was like, what? So I looked and she goes under her thigh and she was wearing this skirt, little mini skirt. And under her thigh, I look down. And I see something glint in the light. From the, from the ceiling. And I said, uh, and I knew that there was nothing there that could have been glinting because it's flat leather, so you can't have that. So I knew there was something there that it was catching the light. So I said, Lindsay, and Sharon said, it's there. And I said, Lindsay, I said, Sharon just said it's under your thigh. So she pulls it out and she goes, well, I want this. I want, I said, well, obviously you want it. Otherwise you wouldn't have taken it. And she then says to me, she goes, well, how much do you want? And in Sharon's voice, she says, she goes, $1,000. She doesn't have it. So I started, I said, $1,000. Because I knew she didn't have it, Sharon said. So she goes and she starts rifling through her purse. And she literally comes out of her purse with a, with a, with a bunch of bills in her hand. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And she says to me that... She goes, I have $600. I said, it's $1,000. And she then says, I said to her, I said, look, I said, I'm planning on doing a TV show dealing with the paranormal. And every episode, we're going to have a different celebrity guest on. I said, I'll be happy to pay you your regular, you know, your regular SAG rate to be on the show. And I will give you the note for free for being on the show. So what the hell do I get response from her? Oh, hell no, over my dead body. And then I just looked at her and I just grabbed the freaking note from her hand. I said, well, that will be mine then for now, forever then. 
And it was like, what an insulting little twerpy thing to say when somebody's giving you something for free that you want and you have the audacity to make that kind of a statement. That's obscene. And I was really pissed off, to be honest with you. I was insulted. Her. Well, sure, she tried to steal your memorabilia. Exactly. Well, there's a couple of things in there that I think are interesting. Yes. Uh, and, and number one, I mean, it's it's a funny story. You're like, oh, I want to see, I want to play this character in a movie one day, so I, I'd like to meet her ghost. Uh, and then you have to deal with celebrity entitlement, um, you know, yes. those that, that kind of story. But then the next thing is, I'm interested in when did you start hearing the voice of Sharon Tate and recognizing who it was? Uh, 2004, when I was walking down the driveway and I was at odds with what I was doing as far as my career was concerned. And I was just saying, I said, what am I, I said out last night, what am I going to do? I said, you know, I got this house. It's great. I said, I've done a bunch of different things in my life. I've had a restaurant, I hadn't owned a restaurant. I've had a dog walking service. I've had a private investigation service. I've had other things. I said, you know, what am I? And then I saw this vision, a little, kind of maybe an eight second video vignette that played out in my mind's eye. And I'll never forget it. I'm, it's me driving in a beaten up 1964 convertible Mustang. And as I'm coming up the driveway, I turn to my left and I'm going past the second house on the driveway. And I see this girl who's dressed in 1969 attire. And she's got the bandana and she's smoking hot. And I'm like looking, I turned, I'm I'm totally captivated her, but I'm still driving the car, mind you, up the street. So I turn my head to the left and I'm looking at her and our eyes meet and I'm like, wow. And as I do that, I then turn to my right immediately as I start to notice that the car is starting to go down the the hillside if I don't turn quickly and avoid that. So I correct the steering wheel, I turn it to the right and I, I save myself from going down the mountain. And the next thing you know is, is the camera cuts to the side shot from the passenger side, panning across my face and up into the rearview mirror, showing nothing in the rearview mirror. And I, I was like, I, it like it was just that quick of a brief of a vignette. And I was like, what the hell was that? It was totally outside of my own cognitive realm of thinking. And I was like, that was wild. What the hell was that? And then I heard a voice say, it's Sharon. I want you to write this down. And I said, it's Sharon. Sharon who? And then it was like, ding, 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 ding. It's like, I don't know any Sharons, but I do know that there was a Sharon that lived on this driveway some 30 some odd years earlier. And oh my God, that's who the hell that must be. So I ran back to the house. I grabbed a legal pad and I started writing down in detail what I had seen in my mind's eye. And literally this type of, these incidents of me stopping in the middle of whatever I was doing, didn't matter where or when I was doing it, I'd see a vignette. And it was a different vignette, and it wasn't like it was the same thing of me. It was just another piece of a puzzle, as I would say. And I knew immediately I had to go back and write down what I had just seen in detail so I would have a record of it. And after about three months, I ended up with like around 35, 40 pages of these different vignettes that didn't make any sense to me. Um, So I called a friend of mine who's a screenwriter. And he said to me, all right, I'll come over. You got to make dinner. It's like, all right, fine. So I made dinner. He comes over. He looks over these things and he says, all these vignettes are scenes, disparate scenes from what could be assembled as a movie. And a screenplay, and I said, okay, so we took them all, and we cut, cut up all the pieces, all the vignettes out of the pages, and literally had like like four inches and three inch slabs of paper with different vignettes that I had recorded. And we assembled them into a screenplay and put them into what, what we would now call as the story of House at the End of the Drive. And that's what it became. So you would say that the House at the End of the Drive is actually would be co-written by this spirits you know the ghosts of Cielo drive yeah as i said in the beginning of the movie it says this film was inspired by by the people by the by but was it this by the by by true by the true story that took place um and there who's what is it something to the effect of saying that this, this was inspired by those who died down the street from my house and there's their spirits are still not at rest and basically it was her story that she gave to me that jimmy and i 
ended up refining and creating and turning into the movie House at the End of the Drive. Yeah. So you talk about that process in the book. I think it's interesting how like you put these vignettes together, you take it to your screenwriter friend, and he's like, oh, you put it together like this, we can make a movie out of it. Right. Um, and so you have a paranormally uh, inspired fiction movie. Um, you know that that's you know based on some things that have happened to you as well as like you said half half fantasy half reality and right. the, the book the ghost of Sailor drive is your story of what's happened to you and happened to your friends since you've you know cr- you know built the house moved in and started having weird experiences and also there is a great story about your girlfriend uh, having some <laughs> ghost sex with Jay Sebring uh, in there too that's pretty funny that's a good tale as well and I encourage if you guys are interested in like the geography of the area and uh, the history of the Manson family. This is an interesting paranormal take on that. And so if people are interested in getting a copy of Ghost to Sailor Drive, where can they find that, Dave? The only place it's available right now, and I apologize, I have not had the time and the money to, to go out and do the audiobook or do the Kindle version. It's right now only in print version, and that's available at ghostsofcielodrive.com. And it's $20 for the unsigned copy. If they want a signed copy from me, it's an extra five bucks. So it's 25 bucks. And it's a unique take on the paranormal because I don't play these. I'm scared. I'm afraid. This is going to hurt me. I'm terrified of spirits. It's a real calm, rational, experience-driven story of my experiences here in the house and that of others without any of the fluff and the fear and the the paranormal, you know, BS that people like Zach Baggins like to push the uh, the envelope on because that's just bull and. Well, you know what I enjoyed about the book, I think, is um, number one, it does go into some, you know, the history of it. You do talk about the Native American stuff. You also get into, I mean, it does get into uh, the different electromagnetic anomalies that have happened there as well. So it's more than just the history creating the ghost stories. It's the history plus the location, plus the geography. And that makes for a lot of thought-provoking incidents. Plus, I mean, so many people, in their own words, write about the stories that have happened uh, at the Omen House. And you, of course, have, I mean, have been on several different TV shows. A hundred different paranormal teams have investigated the place. And if people are are interested in investigating it themselves, breaking out their K2 meters and their their SLS cameras, where can they find information if they want to check out the house at the end of the drive? Um, Well, right now that we're working on trying, like I said, trying to get that into theatrical they can go to houseatheendofthedrive.com to look at stuff about the movie. Um, they can go to the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash David Oman. That's O-M-A-N. And they can see the videos that have been shot here because we have 19 HD 1080p cameras with infrared capability and audio throughout the house. Outside, we have five others. Um, they record 24-7 we just had, as a matter of fact, Jojo Wright from KIIS-FM radio here last night because he's going to be out here on the 29th doing a live streaming video and broadcast from the house. And um, <laughs> we had some very substantial stuff that I'm actually going through after I get off the podcast and I'm going to load up to YouTube Um we had a voice that we recorded that they heard and that we recorded on the closed circuit cameras. It was just, there was some other crazy stuff happening here that they were like, oh, no, no, I heard a knock. It's like, no, we didn't hear a knock. We heard a man's voice say, oh, yeah. I was like, no, 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 We all heard it. It's like, yeah, that was a man's voice. And it was just the three of us. So it was just... It, it's 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 just it's a never-ending type of a, a story of, of the experiences in the house that are, as I call it, they're unique because these people wanted to see something. I said, well, whether it happens or doesn't, I can't guarantee it, and it happened, man. And they were like dumbstruck and going, let's watch the video, let's watch, and they watched the video and go, oh my god. Oh my God! Who the who who's that? The voice whispering in between our talking. It's like ah, uh-uh, that was one of them, and they were like, "Oh no, man! We heard it! We heard it! It was it, it, it to me. It's never. It's always entertaining because 
I take this type type of attack. I remove the religiosity aspect from the paranormal. I don't play that because that's just that's just man's way of controlling man through dogma. Um, and the fact is, we're all going to perish from this earth at some point in our lives. Our lives will will cease to exist on this plane of existence. To be afraid of those that have passed away before us, that are coming back to visit us, is so unfounded and, and so insane. When you think about it, rationally speaking, you're afraid of your aunt or your uncle who's dead, who's coming back to visit you, and you think they're going to hurt you? Really? What right. in the hell? Yeah, the, just the, the BS about the whole story. That's yeah, the devil. They knocked three times. Bull and loney. The, the triumphant of the 666, the mark of the devil, is historically uh, the mark of ancient Rome. It was the Roman tax stamp in a goddamn triangle with three sixes in it. And everything that came from abroad in outer lane regions of the uh, Roman Empire, as well as items in the Roman Empire, were traded and transferred, were taxed heavily by the Romans. That's why the early Christians saw the 666 in a triangle as the mark of the devil, because they're being persecuted on this plane of existence on earth by the Roman government. So that was the mark of the Roman government. It had nothing with the devil on, on, on the ethereal plane. It had to do with the devil incarnate on the physical plane that they were living on. So when people say it's the mark of the devil, shut the hell up and just realize historically it's the mark of the Roman tax stamp. And that's it. Not devil, not anything to do with Satan, period. End of story. Well, and the thing is, and if you guys enjoyed this conversation, you're going to enjoy that kind of same kind of forthright discussion uh, that he has in the book. Plus, there's great pictures. You guys at the Hollywood Ghost Hunters, um, yeah. you know, uh, which is like Kane Hodder from uh, Friday the 13th goes around and does uh, ghost adventures too. And uh, just different, it's a lot of pictures, uh, a lot of stories, and it's a very, uh, well, it's a very original take on the spirits of ghosts of Cielo Drive, the afterlife of Sharon Tate, and the spirits of the Omen House. Thank you, David Omen, for taking your time with us today. Yeah, good luck with the book, man. It's really, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Well, if you ever make it out to the West Coast... And you want to hit me up and come and see the house, go right ahead. I'll be happy to bring you for a private tour here and let you experience it for yourself firsthand and feel it and, and, and be a part of it so you can enjoy it. For the song inspired by my conversation with David Owen this week, we were inspired by the cult of celebrity around Sharon Tate, Charles Manson, and true crime in general. We just can't get enough of real-life drama with these entertainers we've elevated to princes and princesses, but that fame has a price, and sometimes that price is a pound of flesh.
you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey everybody, it's Wendy. And before we end the episode, I just have a quick announcement. In case you happen to be going to Wizard World in Madison this weekend, Mike and I will be recording a live podcast there on Saturday, October 26th at 2 o'clock p.m. So if you're there, please come and join us. We'd love to have you in the audience and we'd love to meet you. Also, Mike, along with our co-host Allison Jorlin and our good friend Lisa from Madison Ghost Walks, will be leading a panel discussion called Haunted Road Trip on Sunday, October 27th at 11.30 a.m. So again, if you happen to be at Wizard World in Madison, we'd love to see you at either of these. And it's going to be a really fun, perfect for Halloween kind of conversation. And finally, I want to extend our gratitude to our wonderful Patreon community, the great friends that we've met through the podcast, See You on the Other Side, and have supported us through their contributions at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. A bonus shout out goes to Dr. Ned, who is pledging us at a level that he gets this custom shout out. He's basically an executive producer for our program. And Ned, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody for listening and have a great week. If it was meant to be, it was meant to be, but it had to be. And that's what ended up happening, you see.